0: Welcome to the Rebel Educator Podcast, where we work to amplify the voices and ideas of changemakers in education. We talk with students, educators, and thought leaders who are questioning the status quo and resisting tradition in education. If you're local to the San Francisco Bay Area, UP Academy, our progressive elementary school, is now enrolling for fall of 2022. So, welcome, Rebel Educators, to this episode of the Rebel Educator Podcast. Welcome, Rebel Educators. I'm here today with Luca Perry. Luca is founder and CEO of the Learning Future and also host of the Learning Future Podcast. The Learning Future is a strategy and innovation consulting organization that supports learners to thrive in tomorrow's world. A former teacher, he has supported tens of thousands of educators and leaders globally to increase their positive impact. He speaks five languages, has visited over 80 countries, holds two master's degrees, one in instructional leadership from University of Melbourne and another in applied linguistics, and has also completed executive studies at Harvard University. He's a fellow of the Salzburg Global Seminar and of the Stanford D School, working at the forefront of the future of education, innovation, and social-emotional learning to empower children, educators, and communities all across the globe, ultimately making our world a better place for all. Welcome, Luca.
1: Wow. Thanks so much, Tanya. Great to be here.
0: (laughs) It's a big introduction. He is making our world a better place for all.
1: Wow. I don't know if I would claim that. I think it's educators that are doing that work. And I started my journey as an educator and I will end it as an educator. There's no doubt about that. I just feel like there is such a moral imperative to the work that one does in learning systems. Yes, a massive shout out to everyone that is really creating possibilities for learners everywhere.
0: As you mentioned, you began your career as a teacher. You quickly moved into a principal role and now you're working in training. So what challenge did you see that made you want to leave the classroom and step into working with educators and leaders in education?
1: It's a great question. I think the question before that is what challenge made me want to step into a classroom and into education? I changed out of a commerce. I almost did a business degree. (laughs) um, I can't even imagine it but I chose to do education in arts.
0: I have a business degree. (laughs) Oh, there you go. Great.
1: I mean, they're helpful. They're helpful. But I've thought I wanted to be in real estate. I mean, it's like a different version of myself, even considering that now. I realized early on that education is the great leveler. It really enables people to understand their own sense of potential, their own sense of self, and how they want to powerfully contribute to the world. So that's why I chose education. And I spent six years in public education in South Australia, uh, here down under. And I suppose stepping into a school leadership role, what I started to notice was, and then actually like a policy role for a number of months, you're making broader and broader impact, but at a much less direct way. And so I guess I was curious about what does it look like to work at a school level and then at a regional level, state level, national level, and now at an international level. But also, where am I best positioned with the skills that I have and my strengths? And so the challenge really was, how might we shift the entire system? And what could be my role in doing that in terms of working alongside, you know, the anonymous extraordinaries, as I like to think of all school leaders and all educators, to continue to do their work and to do it even better. So that, that was kind of the challenge that I thought. I also wanted a different set of challenges, I guess, from the context in which I was working And I was deeply curious and remain so, it's my signature strength, about learning ecosystems. How do we shift the structure within which schools operate? You know, the mental models that we all hold unconsciously, often, about what school is for and what success is at a societal level. And so I've kind of, in some ways, moved more and more into the philosophical realm, but I'm very much a practitioner. And so for me, it's cool. to quote from Charlie Leadbeater, who's a wonderful systems thinker I've done some work with. You know, it's the idea of bringing philosophy, practice, and product together that I think is how powerful change might take place. To me, it's a joy. It's an absolute joy to work with teachers, educators, school leaders, because all of their hearts are in the right place. And so often it's fighting against these inherited models, which no longer serve us, which have, in my view, dehumanized human beings as part of the waves of industrial revolution. And so how do we create a more human-centered and actually humanity-centered education? I think that's an interesting question. And I guess it's one that I'm directly focused on now in terms of some of the social-emotional learning work that I do with a global alliance called Karanga. Learning creates Australia trying to change the recognition system here so that it's not just based on your academic achievement, but it's actually based on your social, emotional and cognitive dimensions and growth and capabilities the future of work is all wound up in this as is Moore's law and exponential technologies I think I'm an aspiring I like using the word aspiring all the time Tanya I think I'll be an old man if I'm lucky to live that long and still be aspiring but an aspiring you know futurist I think is something or an aspiring polymath I'm definitely an aspiring hyperpolyglot which is a someone that speaks six or more languages fluently I'm not there yet but I'm I'm approaching the cusp so I'm excited for that too yeah, so that's that's a little bit of the journey. But the challenge is, I mean, people listening to this podcast, they know the challenges. The challenges are we haven't yet created the experiences and environments nestled in the ecosystem in which each of us, as adults and young people, can truly thrive. And so that that really is the core focus of my work.
0: You brought up a lot of questions and a lot of big ideas. But there was one question in there that really resonated, which is how might we shift the structures and mental models? And, you know, what is the purpose of school? Those are my two big questions for you. You know, when we take the purpose of school, that leads itself into how we might shift or what direction we might shift in. But where are you leaning? Where are you going? Where are the organizations that you're working with? What does that shift look like?
1: yeah, let's start, let's start that second question. What is the purpose of school? In my view, it's planetary flourishing, collective thriving. And we could take this in lots of different directions. If we internalize the industrial model, the purpose of school is to prepare you for the workforce. And I reject that as the purpose of school quite firmly. It's a key part of our own well-being and of thriving or flourishing generally. But it's not, it's not everything. In fact, we, like, we are not what we do. You know, we can get into the the whole realms of kind of purpose orientation here and even spirituality, which is, you know, when do you transcend? When do you realize that it's not about the individuals, it's about the collective? And I think we've just, we have so absorbed this idea of, well, this is my truth and this is like my individual self-actualization. And if we go back to humanistic psychology, which I've been very influenced by, and, you know, Abraham Maslow, the whole idea was never to self-actualize, it was to self-transcend. It was collective actualization. It's like, who do we want to be together? And I think things like COVID has really enabled us to see that. So a school, in my view, education, education's core purpose is enable each of us to find out who we are, what we want to contribute to the world, and how do we create a thriving community and therefore planet. That's a very lofty aspiration, I understand, but that should be the starting point. And then the next question is, okay, well, great. Well, what do we do about that? Well, then we can look at all the kind of arrangements of schools, the structures, the systems, and systems are so good at repelling innovation because they seek homeostasis. They seek the same power structures. It's very difficult. You look across history and anthropology and sociology, and sometimes it's taken a revolution to overthrow a dictatorship and a regime. And so I wonder, often we unconsciously reinforce the system based on the mental models we've absorbed. I'm very curious about the role of self-awareness in understanding what are our unconscious views that drive our behavior. You know, the Jungian quote, which I, I often reflect on, you know, until we make the unconscious conscious, it will drive our life and we will call it fate. You know, there's another great line from Anais Nin, which is, we don't see the world as it is. We see the world as we are. I know I'm, you know I'm approaching these kind of deep level kind of considerations here, but as a leader of a school, Tanya, yourself and formerly myself and anyone that's doing work, we project ourselves onto others. The moments where we're not the most proud of ourselves, it's, it's usually projection. It's something, there's some internal narrative which is mapping onto our external world. So I'm an enormous proponent of self-knowledge, self-awareness and critically self-regulation, which leads to things like grit. Uh, And the the kind of sub-constructs and how we develop them. It's why I think social and emotional learning is such a critical thing for us to embed at the center of all of our human growth and development work. Our, what we might call, human capital investment is how governments might talk about it. You know, we're investing in human capital, i.e. we're putting $100 billion into our education system across the nation, etc. So then the question is, how do we change our mental model? Well, I think it starts with a gentle curiosity And realizing, you know, you should hold your passion tightly, but your ideas lightly. Tanya, when did you last change your mind? When did I last change my mind? Have you ever had had a conversation with someone that said, oh, you've changed? And usually we go, oh, no. When what we should say is, oh, that's fantastic. (laughs) Like I've I've actually, you know, continued my development as an adult. Uh, And, you know, there's lots of different models. Robert Keegan, for example, around adult development, how do we move from kind of a self-authoring mind to a self-transforming mind? And I think all of that uh, is kind of really critical for us, particularly in leadership, to pay attention to. So yeah, I think it's becoming conscious about our beliefs. Like, let's start at the level of belief. What do we believe a school to be for? Or amazing. What, how do we articulate that? And then what do we do about that? What pedagogies, what curriculum, what assessment, what reporting, what community engagement strategies, the really tangible and practical things that make a school a school, a dynamic human learning environment? Yeah, that's a subsequent question. And I think the challenge we all have is, you know, often people that are so overwhelmed in education is someone will have a product and they will say, here's the here's the bullet. And we'll go, great, let's just do that. And we can start with product and that can shift practice and that can shift philosophy. But I, I think you kind of need to do those three things simultaneously. What is our educational philosophy at our school? What are the practices that we think are best practice for who we choose to be in this community, in this part of the country, in this part of the world? And then ultimately, yeah, what are the products that we want to use? What are the artifacts? What are the things that make our school our school? And really be unapologetic about that. You know, when we're talking about mental models, we're really talking about unconscious belief. And so being able to bring our increase our consciousness to why we believe that to be true, I think it's what we're all called to do right now at this moment, particularly with technology transforming around us as well.
0: Yeah, we all draw upon our experiences, which inform our perceptions of the world. And given the experience that each of us had in education, you know, one of the things that I come across a lot is, well, that's not the way we did it, or my school was fine, why do we need to change everything? But when we look back and we've created a large educational system, which was built to put out workers to work in an industrialized system. And that's just not the world that we have anymore. So if we're going to shift from creating industrialized workers to creating self-aware citizens of the world, then how do we shift that mindset from the basis of a school that's not necessarily just to dump content and information and knowledge into a student, but instead is to... Build their character and their self awareness and their self reliance. It's looking at a completely different perspective. Mm. And then it's different teacher training and it's bringing in different systems and different programs and different curriculum because now you're looking at it from a very human aspect. Instead of taking a human and trying to turn them into an industrialized working machine, we're taking small humans, and trying to give them the opportunity to become their best selves.
1: I think you've put that beautifully. As the truism goes, you know, ultimately we should seek in systems, human systems, to create first-class human beings, not second-class robots. And so we shouldn't be, you know, kind of weighing ourselves against technology. The the fourth industrial revolution is all about cyber-physical systems. It's about us working alongside technology, being augmented by AI and machine learning that's driving that. And then, you know, robotics and all these converging tech. Your point, I think, is really good about where we've come from. And it's so important that we understand who we are, each of us. Why do I believe the way I do? You know, what's my own history? What's my own ancestry? What's been the story that I have told myself about myself? In terms of this moment, people still talk about the knowledge economy. I don't think we are in a knowledge economy at all. I think we're in a creative economy. And this is the old saying, you know, from Tony Wagner, who used to be at Harvard as the entrepreneur in residence innovate in residence, you know, it's not what you know, it's what you do with what you know. And I agree with that wholeheartedly. I just think it's incomplete. My view is that, yes, it's what you know, and it's what you do with what you know, but it's actually who you are as you do things with what you know. We need to go down to the level of identity, particularly right now when we're looking at such a polarized world politically, on a whole range of different issues. There is a lot of really strongly held views at the moment, right? And so the idea is how do we gently meet each other and try to understand the other person's perspective? And we must understand ourselves in that. Because it's creative economy, but in a character world. And so your point is absolutely right, I think. You know, we want, first and foremost, good human beings that understand communitas, can operate in community, know how to weave within diversity, increasing diversity and increasing complexity that is coming into our, our world, rather than feeling attacked or vulnerable by a demographic change in a particular part of my community. How does one feel excited about that? Well, one feels excited about that when they have a strong self-concept and they realize that they're not in competition at all. We're not zero-sum. We need to be positive-sum or in an abundant sense of mindset. So that's all easy to say. I'll be frank. That's really easy to say on a podcast, on a lovely podcast speaking with you, Tanya. It's really hard to do the work, the internal work to get us to that point. And so that takes a commitment from each of us to understand ourselves at at such a level of depth where we can hold space, where we can empower others. My philosophy, to be frank again, is we can't create anything. I mean, I need to change that bio. I'm not creating anything, really. I'm not changing things directly. I create an experience in which people may choose to change themselves. This is the same thing that happens in a school. As much as we think about, yes, direct instruction and explicit instruction, they're great pedagogies and should be utilized at times. But ultimately, it's within what frame? An inquiry frame, a curiosity frame a wonder frame. And so the idea is how do I create an environment and an experience in which children, young people, and adults, and the elderly, they're still, you know, into it, choose to learn. And this is the idea of moving from behavior management to motivation architecture. This is the kind of conversation, rather than saying, sit down, Tanya, we should be designing experiences where no one's sitting down, first of all. That's another, we know a, a lot of research, particularly from John Medina in Brain Rules, about why we shouldn't have sedentary environments in classrooms. But the point is, how do we design for these intrinsically motivating environments? And I think that takes new models. Models that I'm sure, Tanya, for as much as I know about the one you're leading there in California, you know, really are, are looking at the whole human being, at the whole person.
0: We're asking educators to really focus on social-emotional learning to help us to build the character traits of connected and engaged citizens. But I feel like many educators feel like they have so many things coming at them and things that we're trying to add on to their plate. If we look at a framework of what are we doing well, what should we continue doing, what do we need to do, which I think is kind of the conversation we've had so far of things that we really need to see in education and want to start doing in order to take something off the plate to make space. What do we stop doing in education? What's not serving us?
1: Uh, needless assessment. <laughs> <laughs> needless assessment. One, be a crowded curriculum. Two, have, we've got great examples of this being done in different schools, you know, where you basically say, we're not even going to attempt to do the full breadth of the AP, or the other kind of American things, or of what we have here, the Australian curriculum, which is pretty well designed conceptually, I have to say. Teachers are like, yeah, because it's, oh, there's another issue. Let's get teachers to do it. Uh, We've all got experience of this. I mean, I remember as a school leader, I used to get 150 organizations all trying to help our school through offering some kind of support and program. It was just overwhelming. We couldn't concentrate on anything. So the only idea is do less and do it better and deeper. This is why I think the deeper learning movement is so powerful it's the idea of yeah let's go really deep into a concept and let's light that fire of curiosity and then enable all of our learners to become autodidacts which really it's today the biggest asset we have is our capacity and capabilities to learn that's what matters most that's where every young person should be positioned at the end of school which of course is just the start of their learning journey gone are the the rocket model days of scalable efficiency we're in scalable learning now as Heather McGowan would say from The Adaptation Advantage, a wonderful book. So yeah, we need to really think quite differently about that. And we need systems to stop putting so much pressure on educators themselves. Social-emotional learning is not an add-on. It's the fabric of education itself. In fact, that's I'm quoting the Aspen Institute here and in the report from a nation at fear to a nation at hope. And yeah, Social, emotional, and cognitive learning is the fabric of education itself. The problem is we have focused so much on just our cognition. We have separated ourselves. You know, we think that knowledge is going to get us out of this, Tanya. It's not. Wisdom is what's going to get us out of it. And that means connecting to disconnected parts of ourselves and our communities. Yes, hyper-specialization, but also deep generalization. You know, these kinds of principles, I think, are are really what's key. So, last thing I'll say is let's take a leaf out of Portugal's book. Portugal said, oh, you know, schools are crowded, we're not getting much done. So, they just said, well, you can take actually up to 50% of your curriculum, you can do something different. They just gave permission to their entire education system for the local leaders, the educators, the school leaders, the community members to make decisions about what mattered most for their learners. And you know, what emerged out of that whole range of different programs, some great community connections in sport. But the main theme that emerged was this focus on well-being, on the social and the emotional dimensions, because it's just not catered for very well yet in our world. Although things are changing. You know, the OECD last year released its report into the study of social emotional skills. And, you know, that's also the same organization that run the international assessment, PISA and TIMS, and have had kind of the league tables of what's the most successful education system in the world, they mainly based off of achievement data. So now we're seeing this shift towards cognitive, social, and emotional. So yeah, less curriculum, less assessment where it's possible. I think those two things are really important. And have a, let's have a graduate profile for every single school that is understood by the learners and the educators and the community themselves. These are the qualities that we want to empower our young people with. That's a really powerful activity to do. It's a powerful narrative to create. And then anything that doesn't align with that graduate profile, choose powerfully not to do.
0: Yeah, I think that makes a lot of sense to me because that's where we started as a school. Mm -hmm. We started with that philosophy. We started, the first thing we created was a graduate profile. Great. What are these students going to turn out like and how do we work backwards to create that? With the understanding that I have all the knowledge that I need in my pocket. So how do I learn to research that? How do I learn to have critical thinking and discern what's true or what's false? Or how do I learn to collaborate within a group of people and brainstorm and come up with ideas? How do I learn to see and notice challenges or problems in the world around me Yeah, and create a solution and test it? And when it doesn't work, what happens then? You know, have I failed or have I just found one way that doesn't work? So now we can try again, right? It's a step in the journey. And so creating all of these things for our young learners really resonates. Everything that you said really resonates with.
1: Yeah, it's wonderful, Tanya. It's such a privileged and difficult, as you know, position to be a foundation principal. Um, I hope in my career at some stage, it's something I might choose to do because you get to start afresh with a community with a often a motivated community that want to do some things a really difficult challenge is if you're a school with 150 years of history in a sandstone building that's known for its academic achievement how does one how does a team there try to take often the parents in particular on a journey to say the way school you experienced it, it's not the way it needs to be right now and in fact the way it is right now is still eons behind how it needs to be in 20 years time i think the age of schooling is coming to an end that's my view. What will replace it? Dynamic learning ecosystems, interconnected, verifiable, token based, Web3 powered, right? Learning ecosystems. And I really think that's where we're going to go. There's still going to be places called school, but they're now going to be nested within a far broader understanding of a life of growth and development, of micro credentials. You know, learning today is for life. 17 jobs, five industries, as the research say here in Australia, is is the new reality for graduates coming out of high schools today. Let alone, you know, what's that going to look like when my, my niece and nephews finish school in, you know, 2040? You know, so there's some pretty big questions out there. But yeah, trying to take, I think it's capital N narrative. A new narrative is really, really important. And then it's about Coupling the practical shifts that can take place on that. Design thinking, human-centered design can be really powerful methods, methodologies to use to for all of us to take ourselves on an innovation journey. I often use them in my work. And I think that's a... I mean, I just really do take my hat off to the educators that that are sometimes pushing up against such a strongly held and, frankly, unconscious mental model of what a school needs to be. And so what a school could be is a really great question as well. And also a very good book by Ted Smith. So shout out to Ted as well.
0: <laughs> so tell us how your school was. I love to hear stories of, guess, elementary school years. So can you share a story of something that you remember from your time in elementary school?
1: Oh, as a student.
0: As a student. Oh, <laughs> I, um,
1: I would say I was allowed to flourish as I went through my high school Elementary school, for me, I have memories of feeling a little odd. You know, as you can tell, I'm a bit of a philosopher. You know, I'm kind of, sometimes I would get lost in my head thinking about ideas. But there's such a wonderful support for performance. In particular, I picked up all my music as like an elementary student. And I remember being in extension maths class, being part of the science club. You know, just a real passionate nerd. All the seeds were planted early for me yeah and I remember we used to do this uh it was a, it was a small school, it's a small Catholic school in the inner city of Adelaide, South Australia. and you really did feel like you were part of a community. and I remember kind of performing quite a lot and speaking, playing the drums, singing a song, and it must have sounded terrible. And yet the support that came from these educators and the encouragement, I mean, it really did set in motion things that powerfully enabled me to step into. Um, high school. And actually, just to close this, I just want to say an enormous thank you to Tanya Jones. Ms. Jones was my year six, my grade six, seven teacher for two years. She would set our homework on a Monday and it was due on a Friday. We would start every morning with a salute to the sun, which is a yoga, you know, yoga. She was ahead of her time understanding embodied cognition, you know, really doing kind of Socratic seminar. Just a wonderful educator, wonderful educator. And so set me up to step into a bigger high school where I really flourished, you know, joined every club, every band, every football team, you know, did all the things, co curricular, as well as did quite well in academics. So, yeah, she was just a remarkable teacher that made a big difference on my life. And so when I think back to that period of time, I really see her as someone that I owe a great debt to. And I actually did reach out to her. Five years or so ago, she's a principal in the northern suburbs of Adelaide and said, thank you, because that's the impact she's had on me. And I think it's one of the great things for us working in education is that we can, we don't know the ripple. We create a ripple and we don't know how far that actually travels. And I think most of us would be pretty astounded to realize how far it might.
0: An amazing career and an amazing space to work in because of that. Because you always have the opportunity to plant those seeds and you never really know where it's going to go.
1: Yeah, exactly. Educators are gardeners in my view. We want to need to create, yeah, the seeds are all planted. They're the young people that we serve, our colleagues that we serve alongside. And it's how do we create the right conditions, nutrients, the right fertilizer, the right amount of sunlight and shade so that everyone can powerfully step into the life they want to live. And it should be a life of contribution and a life of community particularly in a world that sometimes seems like it's ripping itself apart, I think community is the answer in so many ways.
0: Well, thank you for making our world a better place. How can people get in touch with you, Luca?
1: Thanks, Tanya. I, I think I'm just supporting the people making the world a better place. But um, I'm a Greek-Welsh-Australian, so I have a Greek first name and a Welsh last name, which means it's the only combination in the world that I've been able to come across. So it's L-O-U-K-A-P-A-R-R-Y. And... Yeah, I'd love for you to follow me on LinkedIn or check out our website at thelearningfuture.com. But yeah, if you Google my name, you'll see a couple of quirky, interesting things I'm involved in. And I'd love to get in touch with anyone that's doing really interesting work anywhere in the world because it matters and it matters particularly right now. Thank you. Thank you.
0: Thank you everyone for listening to the Rebel Educator Podcast. I'd invite you to check out rebeleducator.com where you can see all of our upcoming workshops, webinars, and professional development opportunities. UpacademySF.com where you can see our current progressive elementary school in action. And if you've enjoyed this episode, we'd love for you to leave a review and rate our show so that others can find it and love us too. Keep resisting tradition, Rebel Educators.